to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. I hope you didn't get scared away by the title, Rapid Hold Genomic Sequencing. I know that seems like a pretty daunting topic, but it is a really, really interesting conversation and so much to learn. My guests today are a panel of three amazing pediatricians. Dr. Joseph Fakuri is originally from Troy, Michigan, but currently lives in Portage. He completed his undergraduate education at the University of Michigan, where he received a Bachelor of Science in Neuroscience. He then went on to complete his medical education at the American University of the Caribbean School of Medicine. Dr. Fakuri completed his residency training at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker School of Medicine, where he served as chief resident during his final year of training in 2015-2016. He now practices as a pediatric hospitalist at Bronson Children's Hospital in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine at WMED. Dr. Fakori enjoys teaching and working closely with residents to enhance their hospital medical curriculum and earned the Outstanding Teaching Award in 2019, 2021, and 2022. He has served on the MIAAP, Michigan Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics Immunization Task Force, and was the chair at its inception. He also received a Special Achievement Award at the 2020 MIAAP Annual Conference, is now Vice President of the MIAAP, and will serve as President beginning in 2024. Dr. Andrea Schurer received a Bachelor of Science in Biology from the University of Michigan and completed medical school and residency at Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit. She then worked as a neonatal registrar at the Children's Hospital of Westmead in Sydney, Australia, returning to the United States, and in 2010 completed neonatology fellowship at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry in Rochester, New York. After fellowship, she joined the Southwest Michigan Neonatology Group and continues to practice at Bronson Children's Hospital at a Level 3 NICU in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Her decision to pursue private practice stemmed from her passion for clinical neonatology and her commitment to provide families with continuity of inpatient care. Her current major of interest focus on utilizing the power of personalized precision medicine to improve clinical care for neonates and children. Dr. Caleb Bupp is a pediatrics-trained, board-certified medical geneticist practicing with Spectrum Health West Michigan and Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids. He serves as the Chief of Medical Genetics and Genomics and is also an assistant professor at Michigan State University, where he was named a Pediatric Master's Series teacher. He is the chairperson of the Genomics Committee at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital and the Spectrum Health Institutional Biosafety Committee, as well as serving on the Helen DeVos Children's Hospital Research Advisory Council. He is the chair of the state of Michigan's Newborn Screen 
Quality Assurance Advisory Committee, and a member of the Make-A-Wish Medical Advisory Council for the State of Michigan. Dr. Bupp received his Bachelor of Science degree in Molecular Biology from Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania, and his medical degree from the University of Toledo College of Medicine in Ohio. He completed a pediatrics residency at the University of Louisville in Kentucky and his medical genetics training at the Greenwood Genetic Center in South Carolina. His clinical interests include intellectual disability, genetics education, and rare syndromes. He has authored multiple journal articles and textbook chapters in the field of genetics, and recently he helped to describe a new treatable genetic syndrome caused by ODC1 mutations, now termed the Bachmann-Bupp syndrome. He has been an invited speaker for many conferences and events locally and nationally. So you can see from these introductions, these are three remarkable pediatricians. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Fakuri Shorer and Dr. Caleb Bupp. Hi, guys. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, So for listeners out there that can't see me or see our speakers, I have Dr. Joe Fakuri, Dr. Caleb Bupp, and Dr. Andrea Shorer with me today. And this is kind of a different conversation that might be on other podcasts. And I liken it to kind of detective program. I think it's really interesting. It feels like cutting edge science. So for those of you that are science geeks, I think this will be right up your alley. So we're going to just dig right in. Um, Before we get started, just a little bit about your journey into pediatrics and your particular specialty. So just a snippet. And um, Joe, let's start with you. Yeah. So I'm originally from the east side of the state of Michigan um, and came here to Kalamazoo to do residency. Uh, So I attended residency at Western Michigan University um, here in Kalamazoo and uh, finished pediatric residency through our peds. I was very confused, like many people are, in terms of what they wanted to do with themselves and uh, after training and Uh, I think because I liked so much of different parts of each specialty, I ended up gravitating towards hospital medicine, uh, which allowed me to really uh, dabble into a little bit of everything. And and then uh, I was grateful and lucky enough to be able to stay here in town after residency. And I currently work at uh, Bronson Children's in Kalamazoo. Thank you. Yep. And Joe is also our vice president of our Michigan AAP chapter. So uh, he's kind of ventured off into some leadership roles. So that's exciting. How about you, Andrea? Sure. Um, so I am also from Michigan, grew up here and had a very good relationship, I think, with my father, who's a physician, and then my general pediatrician growing up. I really respected him and uh, was hoping for a career in in medicine that garnered the same level of respect. And so went into uh, medicine, and then ultimately, I liked OBGYN in in med school and also uh, did a sub-I rotation in the NICU, which then kind of solidified, well, it's not so much the OBGYN, it's more the babies that I really like. And so then, you know, went forth into neonatology. And um, in particular, over the past 12 years here in my private practice, neonatology group at Brownson, really just came to appreciate how much genetic disease actually exists in newborns and pediatrics as a whole. And I think that idea has been even more so out there for all to appreciate the past, you know, five years or so. Yeah, I think it's, it's a 
really exciting field. Anything to do with genetics always seems to be really intimidating. But I, a few years ago, I heard Caleb speak and it was so interesting and it, it kind of made me feel like, oh, maybe I can understand this. Um, so Caleb, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, I guess I'm going to be the non-Michigander. I'm uh, from Pennsylvania, so not too far away. But uh, similar to Andrea, I grew up, my dad is a pediatric dentist. Um, he actually has a special interest in kids who have special needs. So for like 40 years, he's been seeing lots of kids who have genetic syndromes. So it's very bizarre to kind of come full circle. I ended up um, in medicine through medical missions experience I had in college and gravitated to peds because I like kids. Typically when they're sick, it's not their fault. They get better really quick. Uh, there's the fun aspect to it. And then headed towards genetics after some patient experiences I had taking care of kids during my peds residency that had genetic syndromes. And it just kind of caught my attention and things have uh, uh, kind of evolved from there. Yeah, I think a thread in all of the conversations and um, certainly for mine too, I thought I wanted to do OB and do home births because I had worked with a lay midwife when I was a hippie in college and kind of fell into my peds rotation and went, mm, I really like pediatrics. These people are fun and happy and both the kids and the doctors. So that was how I got in there. But, you know, it's all the sort of experiences that you have and your mentors along the way. So, you know, if you're you're a listener out there and you're not quite sure which field you're going to go into, you know, it's okay. <laughs> Follow your passion. And sometimes it takes twists and turns. Well, I wanted to talk about Baby Deer. I love the name of it. And what is the project and how did it get started? Um, we probably ought to have just a little definition of Baby Deer. And Andrea, I'm going to start with you. So if you want to just tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what exactly is that? Oh, sure. So, so the name, I'll start with the name, Project Baby Deer, was really modeled after a California project entitled Project Baby Bear. And that if you catch the theme, it's the state animal theme. Um, and so part of the inspiration for our project was Project Baby Bear in California. And so we just thought, well, how convenient. Michigan has a, a very cute state animal. We could work with that. And so luckily it wasn't, you know, baby wolverine or anything like that. It was <laughs> baby deer. So that's the name. But basically what, uh, what it is is a clinical implementation of evidence-based precision medicine and pediatrics and specifically focused on how to get rapid whole genome sequencing more easily done for sick inpatients, um, neonates and children across the state. And that was really the, the idea behind it. So what was the birth story of that? I mean, the three of you kind of came together and, you know, Caleb, I know you're the genetics guru and you have a syndrome named after you, which I think is fascinating. And, um, you know, how did you guys connect the dots? Because you are at a different institution than Andrea and Joe. So where was the connect the dots? Yeah, one of the best parts of Baby Deer is the collaboration. And as with many collaborations, like one thing leads to another and you don't want to know what the next thing is going to be until you get there. The landscape of inpatient genetics has really completely changed in the last five years. In the past, genetic testing was expensive and it was slow. And so we would have kids that were born and were critically ill at birth or born and became critically ill as kids. And we didn't know why. And like, again, one of the fun things about kids is that kids like typically are pretty healthy. So when kids get sick and when they get really sick, like what's going on? 
And for many, many years, we could look at these kids and, you know, puzzle and say, hmm, I'm not sure. I wonder, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. But there wasn't a way to use genetics to try to make a diagnosis. So it was imaging, you know, let's run another kidney function panel. Let's look at it. It's the iterative testing. And as genetic testing has gotten faster and cheaper, it's kind of flipped the script a bit in that we now have the ability to use genetic testing and to use genetic testing that comes back fast to make diagnoses. And when you're dealing with a kid who's critically ill, a fast diagnosis makes all the difference in the world. So that was like the shift that was happening. And at Helmholtz Children's Hospital, we were kind of thinking like, where is pediatric care headed? And this idea of, of rapid genomics, precision medicine kind of came our way through some of the work that was being done at Rady. And so we, in 2017 into 2018, kind of piloted, a, we actually had to do it as a research study the first time because it was still, you know, a bit uncertain as to what this actually looked like. And we started using rapid whole genome sequencing and finding diagnoses and impacting our man management and seeing that like we were giving better care. And at the same time that was evolving, Andrea, about an hour south of me, was, I think, Andrea, you were working on some test utilization with the lab, like what test should we order and when, and had come across again this idea of using rapid genomics, really fast, broad genetic testing, and just sort of collegially, we started talking and saying, hey, what are you doing? What are you thinking about this? How could we just like phone a friend and work together? And one thing led to a second thing and led to, hey, man, it's worked pretty well at our two hospitals an hour away, but there are kids all across the state of Michigan. How could they get access to this testing? How could we work with other medical centers? And Project Baby Deer was was born, if you will. I love that. The power of the word and connection, right? It's all about who your friends are. So Joe, so we have the the neonates, we have the geneticist and the hospitalist. So you're kind of past the newborns in the hospital. So how did you get LinkedIn? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I, I did my residency training in Kalamazoo. So I actually worked under Andrea as a resident um, when I did all of my NICU time. And I think just based on that experience and, and her knowing that I stayed in town at, at a time when she felt like, you know, okay, so we can utilize this in our neonatal uh, period, but, but what happens when a kid maybe is readmitted eight months after discharge and still, you know, has some complex medical scenarios that are just not well explained and how do we better serve those families as we move forward versus just kind of managing that acuity and she reached out to myself and a couple other subspecialists just to sort of gauge our interest and i dove right in i had absolutely no idea what i was getting myself into but it sounded extremely interesting and felt like we were going to be able to serve patients in a way that maybe i was not familiar with as an option and so just as i continued to, to talk to her and that's when i met caleb and so many other of the people that we collaborate with and it's been a really really wild journey since that it's sort of act as if you kind of know what you're doing and then make sure you have lots of friends who do know stuff and then uh, see one do one teach one is the uh, motto many of us have about you know it sounds interesting i kind of learned some stuff and then hey i can do it so well before we dive into the details let's talk just a little bit about what 
what is this rapid whole genome sequencing. I got to make sure I get the right name. So Caleb, you're our expert. You're up. So our genetic code packed into our 46 chromosomes kind of tells our body how to work. And the DNA makes up that genetic code and the letters of the DNA, the A's, T's, C's, and G's, we have billions of them, right? That's our genetic code. And inherently within our genetic code is variation. It's what makes us unique, but there are also genetic differences, genetic mutations, genetic variants. And we all have a handful of them. It's just a matter of where they fall. And again, in the past, if somebody maybe had a genetic condition, you had to kind of know what you were looking for. You see a kid, they look like they have Down syndrome. Okay, well, I'll look at their chromosomes and see if there's an extra 21. That's evolved over time to, well, they have autism. That's like what we talked about last time we did this together. A child who has autism, there's generally a 50% chance there might be something genetic. What exactly that is, you don't really know until you go looking, but you have some sort of direction. So as technology has gotten better, you can sequence more things faster and cheaper. So we're at the place now where you can look through those billions of nucleotides very quickly in a a matter of hours and start to pull out mutations that cause problems that help you make diagnoses. So that's where the idea of like genomics comes in, where you're using the entire genome to make diagnoses And we're looking at the whole genome. Some folks, listeners might be familiar with exome sequencing. So, you know, your your genetic code is made up of the exons and the introns, taking you back to science class. And the exons are kind of the important part. So whole exome sequencing was just looking at the protein coding part of the genetic code, but it's only one to 2%. It's the most important part. So that was kind of a bridge for many years of we did whole exome sequencing. But we were sort of neglecting 98 to 99% of the, of the genetic code, but you couldn't get there because it took so long and it was so expensive. So again, as technology has is shifted for us, we can now do the entire genetic code, do it fast and do it accurately. And that is the perfect tool for a timely intervention when you've got a sick kid, a sick kid in the hospital, you need to know what's going on precisely and you need to know it fast. You can't wait months, let alone weeks, let alone days at this point. So the world record keeps getting broken over and over, but like ballpark now, you can go from sample out of baby to diagnosis in hand. I think it's now under 10 hours. Wow. And again, that is an extreme, like, you know, you set Guinness records by like setting everything up to do it as fast as possible. But practically what it's translated to is very reasonably two to five days of getting a genetic diagnosis in a critically ill baby. And I'm the geneticist that walks in and out of the ICU, but the folks that live and practice in the ICU can tell you the value of looking at a baby and not know what's going on and now having the option of treating them knowing why they're sick or treating them and not knowing why they're sick. And one of those is better than the other. Yeah, it's just like there was this whole dark closet and you turned on the light and it's like, wow, look at look at what's here. I think that why is so helpful because, you know, so many times we're just scratching our heads like, okay, we're, we're trying to fix whatever's going on, whether it's fluids or unusual proteins that are showing up, but we really don't know what the cause is. So it makes it more difficult. Plus, I think it helps families understand like there's a reason for this and that might be helping. So Andrea, let's say you have a baby 
in the NICU that you're worried about. What would make you think about baby deer? And maybe you could just walk us a little bit through, you know, what's the process from, you know, the baby, the family, getting the stuff to the lab? What's that look like? Sure. So as Caleb mentioned um, a few moments ago, we, we do have, and, and we're working on back in 2019, 2018, 2019 at Bronson, kind of a, an algorithmic approach to genetic testing in the newborn, because we wanted to take a stewardship approach to it. The lab had approached us, hey, you can't just be sending whatever genetic test you want all the time to whatever lab. Let's kind of get this figured out. And so we have a guideline for testing that we follow, and there's three different categories of, of infant at the top. And and the genome really comes into play when you've got a critically sick infant, you know, multiple congenital anomalies, or they've been in the NICU and they're already on a diagnostic odyssey path and with no underlying reason for illness explained. And, you know, then what we do if we think we have a baby that, that meets criteria for testing or that we're just, there's no single genetic disorder we think might be going on, like Prader-Willi or back with Wiedemann. I mean, some genetic conditions, you kind of have a good idea. So the first test you send is more of a directed first genetic test as opposed to something so broad. So, you know, when we don't have that specific genetic disorder in mind, but we have a baby whose situation we don't understand, and it used to be in the beginning of the project, the more critically sick, but it's morphing now into really just the baby we don't understand. Um, they don't necessarily have to be critically sick, and which has been a nice change, but but that's how we go about it. And then we'll, we'll call genetics up at DeVos or we'll call the neurology folks if it's a kid with congenital hypotonia and get kind of a, a subspecialty take on the picture with the baby. And, and if everyone agrees that the best first-tier test, genetics or neurology or whatever specialist we're talking to outside of our, ourselves, Joe and I, for example, then we approach the family with the option for genetic sequencing. Okay. And so I'm guessing this is a whole nother thing is the consent of the family and because the implications, you know, there's the whole bioethics of finding out that information. So, Caleb, maybe you can talk for just a minute about sort of that ethical piece and why having this framework and the conversation with a geneticist is so important before you dive into finding the results. Yeah, genetic testing, the consent for genetic testing is still a barrier. And it's not something that you can get done in five minutes. It takes thought and discussion and kind of teach back with families. And some people, if you don't do it frequently, it's, it's kind of uncomfortable because you have to talk through, well, what if we find something that we weren't expecting to find, a BRCA mutation? What if we find something and we don't know what it means? We call those incidental findings or variants of uncertain significance. Maybe this is our answer. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. Good luck. Like that's a weird place to be. It can disclose non-paternity. It could show that parents are closely related. So there's all these little nuances that typically aren't going to be an issue. But when you're ordering genetic testing, folks need to be informed. And I think another challenge that we face is consenting families for this kind of testing in the midst of critical illness of a child. That's a tough mental place for families to be. And are we truly getting informed consent? Because being honest, I feel like a lot of families are like, whatever you think, like I'll, I'll do whatever for my baby, right? So how do we balance the informed consent, but not overdoing it and overwhelming families? Because Again, we're not we're not talking with families that are bringing their kid in with a runny nose or earache. These are kids that are like 
heading towards morbidity and mortality. Yeah. And I'm wondering, because you're in several different, so you piloted it between DeVos Children's and Bronson Children's Hospitals, but then you also expanded it to other places around the state. So I would think you'd want consistency and process. Do you have scripting that you recommend for your other sites? Yeah, I think Andrea and Joe have both done a really good job of kind of building it themselves. And then part of Baby Deer has been trying to share this sort of stuff with other sites. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the communication. I mean, sometimes if you're all in silos, it makes it confusing. So you have anything to add to that, Joe? Yeah. I was just going to say, so Andrea really spearheaded it, but I helped in the sense that because, you know, I'm not a geneticist, I'm not even a neonatologist. And so when I'm trying to talk to families on the inpatient realm, if a child is, is readmitted to the hospital or, or admitted for the first time, if they were in a NICU grad, for example, how do I get comfortable talking about these particular challenges that and nuances? And we worked really closely with Rady, the lab that we work with, but then also Caleb and several other partners who weighed in on sort of our formalized consent process. And so we do have a template for the EMR that we utilize, and that allows us to, to stay on task in terms of the important things that we need to highlight. But as Caleb mentioned, when you know these children are either critically ill or, or such a diagnostic odyssey, it a lot of times their attention span is very limited. And these are very important points that, that we can't always skip over. And so it, it's really important for us to try to help them stay focused on some of these nuances before we move forward, because this is not just ordering a CBC, you know, for example. And so uh, I think trying to help them understand that the difference in this test versus another more routine one is, is super helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a Pandora's box. I mean, you're, you're hoping you're going to find an answer, but then you might find all this other stuff. And on the receiving end of genetic testing, you know, and you get the incidental findings, it's like, does that matter? Is it going to matter in five years when, you know, the technology advances? So, I, I mean, I think this is really a kind of a key part. And I was just going to ask you, because there are other states, is there a consortium between the other states doing this? So there's not really a consortium between states, but, you know, groups like the American College of Medical Genetics have guidelines for consenting, what sort of things are generally agreed upon that when you're consenting for a broad genetic test, what things should be considered incidental findings that patients should be able to opt in and opt out, and then the genetic test. So if somebody orders a genetic test like rapid genome sequencing, there's a test requisition to fill out, there's typically signatures to get, and labs have their own policies and things that they have, they're held to as far as what has to be included in the consent. So there are protections in place, and I would want anybody to think that you can learn how to do this. It is not uh, insurmountable. It's just tough when you don't do it frequently and when you don't have a friend to ask. And again, I think part of our journey and goals with Baby Deer has been to open the doors and say, this is what we did. This is what worked. This is what failed. Warts and all take it to uh, other states and let's see where this goes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could imagine, you know, between I'm guessing baby bear in California has something similar, but it would seem that if this was something that could be duplicated across the country, you wouldn't want people to feel like, well, they have to reinvent it when you've already got a process. So that sounds like 
uh, to be continued, right? Well, so here's the big drum roll. So what did you find? I mean, has this made a difference? Caleb, let's start with you. So the simple answer is yes, it works. Turns out genetic testing in kids who are sick makes diagnoses, improves care. Patients and families love it. And the real like big piece that's unexpected when it comes to like medical innovation is it reduces cost. And I think, again, that is a huge pillar of this kind of work for the future of healthcare is we're adding something to the mix now that doesn't make healthcare more expensive. It actually reduces the cost because you do the right thing the first time without the trial and error. So like, I think inherently as medical providers, we get it. So yes, the, the baby deer outcomes and work showed what other similar studies about 40% of kids will get a diagnosis. There's going to be some range there. Change in medical management happens very regularly. Again, depending on the study you look at, a quarter to a half of kids, there's a change in management. Costs are reduced. And we did some economic analysis that showed, you know, even taking the cost of the testing out, there was still a net savings per patient that was in the thousands of dollars. So we really checked all the boxes for what we thought we would find. And then I think also show that you can do it as a group, particularly a group that just kind of banded together out of solidarity and shared purpose rather than we're trying to get research funding or this was some sort of, you know, initiative from on high. I think it's so exciting. I mean, it must be like everybody's waiting for the results. I mean, Andrea, what's that look like in the NICU? Yeah, I mean, just like Caleb said, you know, the project as a whole, when we started off, we had always a goal of looking at the clinical outcomes, the economic impact, and also advocacy so that when the project was finished, we could keep sending the genomes on relevant patients. And so there was a lot of things going on all at once. But in in the NICU in particular, we have sent a genome every month to every other month. And since 2019, I think we're up to between NICU and Joe's um, PED side, about 30 genomes. And I argue that, you know, yes, we've got the 40% diagnostic rate and the 30% change in clinical management rate at Brownson so far. But when you know the family and you can't really get on a path to discharge or you're trying to understand what's going on, even the genome that doesn't give you any answers, there is power in that that you just can't really measure. Joe and I, I think, have gotten more comfortable with just, is this a good patient? And to the point sometimes where we don't even feel like we need to talk to Caleb or his team to go down that road. Um, but that, that has come with experience and time. Um, we have modified the consent as we've done it more and more and learned more and more. We really need to add this. We need to add that and have had um, genetics counselors review the consent so that we feel like we're doing the best we can there. And the interesting thing is about, I'd say a year or so ago, we were in a place with the boss finally where we could offer telemedicine consult services to the family. So we could go beyond just talking to the uh, genetics team on the phone, but FaceTime with families and, and DeVos genetics being able to document in our epic chart. And with that included Joe and I being able to say, if you would like to talk about this test with the geneticist or genetics counselor before we send it, we can make that happen. And I haven't had a single family want to do that. They all tell me, I would like to talk to genetics if you find something, you know, and so we kind of leave it that. We always recommend anytime we send a genome, whether we find answers or not, that the family follow genetics down the road and set that up upon discharge because 
there's so much important things that can happen in the future. If, if a reanalysis is needed, for example, you know, they need to be in the hands of um, genetics for that um, outpatient, certainly. And, and any questions that might come up over time, especially if you do find an incidental finding that you weren't looking for. Well, Joe, you know, without disclosing any patient health information, can you give us just a kind of an idea what it looks like when you get an actual positive? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest things that I've learned throughout all of this is that it really has uh, allowed us to, to reach perhaps populations that maybe are not always have the access to genetic care and genetic testing. I have on, on my part of the, the pediatric world, if you will, on the inpatient side, have actually had more either variants of unknown significance or non-diagnostic results than I have actually had uh, diagnostic mutations or anything along those lines. However, it has provided so much power to families to know that at this time, there might not be something that is easily explained by a genetics mutation regarding their child's care, but that doesn't make it impossible and that there's still an option to go and meet and talk with a geneticist if they'd like as long as you know because we've found that patients do end up uh, stabilizing and moving in that direction but i think one of the more important pieces and this actually was just highlighted within this last week between caleb and i there's a patient that i did this test on i think it was in 2019 or 2020 and uh, there was no diagnostic result Um, they have followed up with caleb years since then and they have new clinical features and now we're actually able to re uh, analyze the the genome to to see if there's something now that could explain things as new features have have popped up and so the fact that this is something that families with more complex children from a medical perspective have as an opportunity i think is just really powerful for them to better understand how to care for their child in the best way that they feel that they need to. And and I really think that families really do appreciate that opportunity. It, it sounds like this sort of explosion of knowledge that keeps kind of keeps on coming. I mean, Caleb, you know, on the on the receiving end of a lot of the genetics information and also the follow-ups, have you seen cases where we didn't know something and then years later, we're able to re-examine and found something? It certainly does. One of my mentors uh, used to say to me and to patients that what I say today may sound really stupid tomorrow because something might get discovered or, or found. And that happens every day with genetics. So we've had uh, a shared, actually a shared family with multiple children um, between Bronson and Helena Voss. One was born there, one was born here, that we essentially published a new syndrome out of because it had never been seen before. We've had uncertain results that get clarified with, again, some research testing and things like that. So there have been many, many instances of sort of the genome is the first part, but then there's follow-up work afterwards, which again is is honestly a bit daunting to think about, well, how am I going to handle all this? You know, I don't have a research lab or a an institute that can help me with these things, but we're all in the same boat with this. It's not unique to any one center. And uh, I think part of this is also going to be kind of jumping in and, and learning to swim while you're in the water a bit. What about you, Andrea? Anything on the NICU side? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just like to kind of reiterate Joe and Caleb too. The, the cool thing about 
the collaboration from the beginning in the pre-project baby deer days is really feeling like we're helping families regardless of testing result because it's not just about getting access to the test but it's about optimizing the ongoing care after discharge and you know throughout that child's life and I do think this has been a good relationship to show how two very different centers, you know, can collaborate and make that happen for families. And I'm wondering too, there must be some, I mean, I think about sort of equity and access, like you're talking about, Joe, some reassurance to a family that they have been offered the Cadillac of care. Um, this is the very highest level of inquiry that we have, and it's it's available to you. We may or may not get information but it's sort of a negative as information too, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think just one last point would be, you know, the the power behind telling a family, you know, we've done the most comprehensive genetic test currently available. And in spite of that, we have not found a medication or a test, a next test or something to do to take us down a different path. And I think what a lot of these parents are looking for is what if there's something and we're not doing it. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to say to them, We've done all we can do to find that path that we thought might be there, but it, it's not there right now with the best of our knowledge. And there is so much power in that for families to just take a step back, I think, and feel like, okay, well then, what next? You know. Well, and with the kind of follow-up, then you haven't slammed the door. The door is still open and it's like, you know, we don't have a genetic answer right now. We're going to keep that as a possibility, you know, because things change. So we're riding the ride with you. Whether or not we know all the answers, we're here with you and, you know, we want to offer you the best that we can. And I would think that would be hugely meaningful. Well, are there barriers to expanding this to other, I mean, it's sort of, you listen to you guys talk and, and think, well, shouldn't every baby have access to this if they need it in any hospital? Caleb, do you want to comment on that? So not to sound like an evil capitalist, but the biggest barrier is still cost. You know, rapid genome sequencing is not cheap. Genetic testing is not cheap, though. And depending on how savvy you are with the inpatient billing of uh, hospitalization, tests that are ordered on inpatients are billed differently. And it just gets complicated as far as who actually picks up the, the tab, if you will. And so one of the major successes of Project Baby Deer was that Michigan Medicaid was the first state Medicaid to write a coverage policy for rapid whole genome sequencing. And the extremely unique thing that they did was that that coverage policy pays for the cost of the testing as a carve out. So it's a separate payment from the daily hospital payment. And that is huge because it, it essentially neutralizes the cost piece of should I order this test or not, which is an awful position to be as a healthcare provider to think, this is the right thing to do for my patient, but it's too expensive. And either the patient's going to pay, the hospital's going to pay, whatever. So neutralizing that is a huge step forward. And why would Medicaid want to do that? Well, it's because it saves them money. Putting the money and the cost in to pay for the genetic testing pays off and then some by cost reduction in the cost of care. So, you know, rapid genomics has been the rare win-win-win that it's good for patients, it's good for the healthcare team and hospital, and it's good for the payer. So I still think, though, that is going to continue to be a barrier because, again, Michigan was the first. Other states have followed. It's just Medicaid. What about, you know, private insurance? What about different um, 
uh, policies that, well, well, it's only up to age one year. Well, genetic disease doesn't stop at 12 months of age, right? So, you know, again, that's maybe not the, the most appealing thing for physicians to think about, but it's being realistic that that's a barrier. Yeah. Well, I'm listening to you. I'm like, hmm, this sounds like an advocacy piece for other states. I mean, if you can make a win with Medicaid, you know, then hopefully that would translate into the private payer world, you know, that the idea of cost saving would certainly be appealing, but this sounds like this is a something to take to the CMS level, right? Absolutely. So yeah, this sounds like something uh, we should hook in with the AAP. <laughs> Do, you know, does state advocacy know about what you're doing or federal advocacy? Because this is pretty exciting. Either Andrea or Joe, you guys have any other thoughts on barriers that you've seen? Yeah. So, I mean, the most obvious barrier to me is what Caleb just mentioned um, in terms of, you know, genetic disease doesn't necessarily stop after 12 months. And I am in a more unique spot than Andrea, for example, right, where she sees babies right after birth, regardless of gestational age. And I might see somebody at 14 years of life who has this very unique and different evolving clinical scenario that doesn't seem well explained by anything else. And so that, I think that is a barrier, right? And, and I think that that could do a disservice as we continue to explore this to families of, okay, so I can offer this testing to a 10-month-old and have that policy available, but I can't to this 14-year-old. And so at least locally at Bronson, we've taken a little bit of initiative. And by we, I, I have to not this mostly to Andrea, no doubt, but we've, you know, through philanthropic seeking, we have those funds available to us at Bronson for me to be able to do that to, for that 14-year-old, for example, um, so that the family still does not see the cost of that particular test. But, but then it does become a little bit more unique in terms of determining how and when to do that. And, and while I feel comfortable exploring that option, that's that's when I defer more to people like Caleb and his, and his partners, because we are kind of reaching that territory where it becomes a little bit more challenging. And, and so I think, you know, when you talk about limitations, either across the, straight, the state or two other states in the country, physicians and, and healthcare providers are at a different level of exhaustion uh, now than maybe in years past. And it does take a lot of personal effort to try and get this off the ground. And so while folks might be interested there they just may not have the opportunity and the ability in this moment and so i think that's a huge limitation but but as you said i think if we know that it's working in michigan at least for that particular population at this moment and so how do we help others recognize that this is an opportunity and how do we then help those who are advocating for other things look at this as an option for them children of all ages in Michigan and in other states. Yeah, it's sort of like, boy, when she found something that works, you want the world to know about it. What about you, Andrea? Any other barriers that haven't already been mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I would say number one is to sort of getting genomic education out there. I mean, I think not everybody has a very good understanding of the risks and benefits. It's, I think, in some people's minds, one of those things that's only to be done by a geneticist, only to be thought of and ordered by a geneticist kind of thing. And so moving, we certainly need their help. I'm grateful for it every single time um, we go down this path, but we need to get beyond that and, and encourage um, pediatricians and neonatologists and PICU intensivists and cardiac intensive care doctors and, you know, about the power behind the test. And, and that's one barrier, I think. And then another is really the lack of established guidelines for use. It's just kind of not there 
perfectly yet. There is one guideline that was just released by the ACMG that um, recommends it as a, I think, first-tier test for um, pediatric patients with neurodevelopmental uh, delays and uh, multiple congenital anomalies is two kind of indicators, but it's not so broad as to say, think of this as first-tier test for your critically sick PICU-NICU patients, you know, and it doesn't include the diagnostic odyssey, you know, Joe's got kids, you know, that, that have had that going on for eight, nine years. Caleb's got those kids he gets consulted on, you know, so there's, there's this lack of well-established guidelines to really give people the the oomph behind which they feel confident to go down that path. And so I think education and guidelines are coming, um, but it's early yet. We don't have it quite yet. It's a little bit like your hands are tied. And, you know, what a thing to have to tell the family. I'd love to offer you this. I think it has great information, but it might cost you thousands of dollars out of pocket. And, you know, then it becomes an equity issue because, you know, not all people are in the place that they can afford that. So I guess just in closing, like any final takeaways, you know, pearls that you'd like to leave listeners with? And Joe, I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, um, I would say don't be scared. <laughs> so again, I, I have no formal genetics training outside of what everyone else receives in medical school and throughout their, their residency training. And I think I was lucky enough that I already had a, a previous professional relationship with Andrea so that I felt comfortable diving in. And I still know that I have people that I can talk to and, and look to when I have certain questions. But I think, you know, part of why we went into medicine is to go on these sorts of adventures. And, and I think it's important to just not question yourself if there's a little bit of interest and you're kind of wondering, curious enough, just dive right in. Because I've learned a lot in the last two and a half years, just kind of working with, with everybody. And, and it's been really fun. And I have so much more to learn. By no means am I ready to run my own genetics clinic, nor will I ever be. But uh, I think it's it's just a really awesome opportunity and some of these extra parts of medicine that you didn't think you'd find yourself in. Yeah, it's sort of the delight in new knowledge, you know, I'm always happening. Caleb, how about you? So I think I would just encourage people that, yes, this kind of work is hard, but it is more requiring of endurance than sheer strength. You know, we're telling a story in, you know, an hour or so that has evolved over five or six years. And again, that's the uh, long, slow journey to get to something. And I think, you know, I wouldn't want anybody to look at this and expect it to happen fast. But I also feel like people can now know that the trail is somewhat blazed and you don't have to figure it out all on your own. And that has been one of our biggest goals with this kind of work is trying to just let people know what our experience was like so they can learn from it. Yeah, I think there's, again, that not reinventing the wheel. And once you've discovered something or shared something, I mean, you want to let others know. But I, I also like the, it's a long, slow journey, but don't let that stop you. All right, Andrea, take us home. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, all of us in the project, Joe, Caleb, and I, and the different champions at the sites across the state and our friends in California, we all really united around the idea that uh, an answer matters, you know, and do what you can, do all you can to make sure you you, you can find that answer for families and patients because um, medicines make a difference, even no answers make a difference. That's the thing, you know, so all of us passionate about that one thing really led us to where we are. And I think it's, it's a passion that unites a lot of people uh, across the country and really the world. So, you know, precision medicine is here in pediatrics and an answer matters for your patients. So we're just hoping to inspire others to go forth with that idea and 
um, make progress. Well, thank you guys all for what you do. This is just so exciting. And I, I love partnerships and networking. I just think it's the best thing. Caleb, this is going to air right around Rare Disease Day. So that's uh, February 28th. So can you just talk a little bit about Rare Disease Day before we close? Rare Disease Day is uh, an advocacy and awareness day. It's always the last day of February. That's the rarest day of the year, if you think through it. (laughs) Um, And Rare Disease Day is about, again, raising hope awareness for the large number of rare diseases that are individually rare, but corporately not. Um, There are 300 million people worldwide that have a rare disease. You know, up to one in 10 people will be touched by a rare disease at some point during their life, much more in children, much more genetic. And, you know, if you work in medicine or around medicine, or even if you're just, you know, living out in the world, things happen that we don't know what causes it medically. And that's a huge part of this, you know, kids don't get sick, get critically ill, right? So rare disease there. So there are lots of uh, virtual and in-person opportunities that people want to engage, learn more, something that happens every year. And it is not going away because every year there are just more and more rare diseases. Well, it's it's really exciting. And I, I like what you said that rare individually, but it's not that rare to have one of them. So I'll make sure that I put some links to other resources for listeners who are interested in this in the show notes. So Well, again, thanks so much. I love that you're on the cusp of exploration and discovery. It's very exciting. You know, there's never a dull moment when you're taking care of kids. And I think this really exemplifies it. So thanks again. I really appreciate all three of you. That was just a really interesting conversation, and I never thought I'd be fascinated by genetics, but the more I've listened to this conversation and Dr. Bupp's previous podcast on genetics, and I'll put the link in the show notes, I am just so intrigued. So here are the takeaways. Number one, thank you to this incredible team of pediatricians who are making a difference for kids. Number two, it took a spark of an idea, the fuel of knowledge, and the power of collaboration to move this project from a pilot to a statewide program. Number three, what started in the NICU has now expanded to include the PEDS ICU and inpatient floors. Number four, the essence of baby deer is offering rapid genome sequencing to infants and children in critical condition with unclear diagnoses, or referred to as the diagnostic odyssey path, on genetics with congenital defects, or just a baby that we don't understand. Number five, this is possible with the lowered cost of rapid genome sequencing and the quick turnaround of two to five days, and sometimes even shorter than that. RGS examines the whole genome for mutations, deletions, and Previously, we depended on recognizing a phenotype. So, you know, was this kid a child that might have a particular syndrome? And now we can do the testing and really know. Number seven, the process involves a call to genetics or neurology to discuss concerns, discussion and consent from the family that might also include a genetic counselor, sending the sample to the lab, and then a brief wait. Number eight, The process only happened after multiple iterations of creating algorithms, clinical pathways, EHR templates, consent scripting, and protocol and training. Number nine. So drum roll. The outcome. 40% of the time, there is a genetic diagnosis, 
but nearly 100% of the time there is power in knowledge. Number 10, RGS and baby deer helps with diagnosis, improves care with the right thing the first time, change in medical management 25 to 50% of the time, and reduces costs with thousands of dollars in net savings. That should perk some ears. Number 11, baby deer is able to reach populations who did not in the past have access and provides ongoing follow-up in the event that there is new information or technology down the road. Number 12, parents are grateful and the information helps families regardless of the results. The family knows that they have received the most complete care available. This is done with careful consideration of the ethics and, you know, the concerns about the information that might be obtained from doing these genetic testing. And I put a link in the show notes to an article that appeared in AAP Pediatrics Journal in December of 2022 about the ethics of consent. So you might want to check that out. Number 13, a huge win was Michigan Medicaid coverage of costs for RGS. Other states may want to take note and can certainly contact our speakers if you are looking for ways to bring this to your state. Number 14. So what are the barriers? Funding. The costs for RGS are now lower, but it's still not cheap, and not all insurers are covering the test, despite the ultimate cost savings. There is a 12-month age limit for Medicaid coverage in Michigan, when often the need arises for kids over a year. I mean, maybe this is a 14-year-old who has had, you know, a perplexing symptoms for a long time and RGS could unlock the diagnosis. Education is a limitation and clinicians need to understand the benefits on the outpatient side too. This is often life-altering information and there is a lack of established guidelines. So that's something that really needs to change. Number 15, here are the pearls. Don't be scared to venture forward and find your friends to go on the adventure with you. The work is hard, but endure it. Be patient. It is a long, slow journey to build programs, but well worth the effort. Unite. An answer matters, so do all you can to get the information. Number 16. In honor of Rare Disease Day on February 28th, remember that individual rare diseases are rare. But collectively, one in 10 individuals have some sort of rare condition, and this translates to 300 million people worldwide. Check out rarediseaseday.org for more information and go to the show notes for additional resources. As always, thank you for everything you do, being detectives with compassion. You're always seeking information and offering light and hope to children and their families, and it doesn't go unnoticed. You can find me at www.medicalbhs.com and sign up for my newsletter and email list. You can DM me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown or find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino. If you're looking at ways to improve the care of children and teens with mental health or behavioral health concerns, consider a consultation. And there are details on the website and in the show notes. I would love to chat with you and brainstorm some ideas. Thanks so much. Have a great day and please join me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, 
do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much and I hope you will join me next week.